Well, good morning again, Chillicothe Bible Church. Uh, this morning, in our time in God's Word, we're going to pick up where we left off in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. Uh, so if you would make your way uh, there in your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible in a good modern translation, I encourage you to leave a comment uh, on this video and we will get you one as as soon as we can uh, we have a whole bunch here in stock at the church and we'd be happy to send you one through the mail uh, as you make your way there i want to describe someone to you this man was once a person of high standing who devoted his life to persecuting and destroying a group of dissidents and revolutionaries until one day when he met their leader face to face and the experience totally changed him he was transformed from being their chief enemy to being their greatest defender and greatest proclaimer of their beliefs and switching sides was personally for him very costly he lost his high status uh, he became a recipient of the same kind of persecution that he once dealt out. And as a result of joining the dissidents, he was publicly flogged eight times, shipwrecked three times, once was the victim of so much blunt force trauma that he was left for dead. A group of his former compatriots once swore a blood oath not to eat or drink until they had killed him. Several times he found himself at the center of riots and surrounded by mobs seeking his life. Uh, he was often uh, hungry and thirsty and sleepless and frequently found himself lacking in adequate clothing when cold weather came. He had to continue working at his manual labor job to support himself throughout most of his life. In fact, for every portion of his life, except for the portion that he spent in prison. Who are we talking about? The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter. In fact, who wrote it from prison, communicating to the Colossian church. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had suffered all of these things, what do you think that your response to those circumstances would be? Do you think that it would have dented your joy maybe just a little bit? Do you think that perhaps you would be wondering if you had given your life for a cause that was not really worth it? Not really worth all of this suffering that you had been experiencing. Can I just encourage you with this? That neither of those reactions, although those would be normal reactions, was Paul's reaction. In fact, he rejoiced, he says, in his suffering. And he also looked into how he could redeem the suffering that he experienced uh, for the advance of the gospel. His joy was undiminished. It even increased because of all these things, and he became even more convinced 
of the truth of the gospel. And the, the advance of the gospel was worth every swing of the lash, every contusion from the rocks, every hungry, thirsty, sleepless, cold, naked, and imprisoned moment that he experienced throughout his life. His joy only grew. And because of that, I think we have a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul and his, not only his life, but his response to his circumstances. Because I have to tell you, if I'm being totally honest, that, that I have not experienced the overflowing of joy in every moment that we have been locked down here for the last 40 plus days. In fact, there has been more than once a bit of complaining at my house uh, by me, by some others, by all of us together. Uh, we have not been rejoicing in the circumstances that we are experiencing, uh, at least not all of the time. And we are not suffering in, this, in anything like the same way. And because of that, I think that this passage can encourage us, it can challenge us, it can teach us how to respond to all kinds of circumstances with joy and with uh, excitement about what God is doing through our circumstances and in our circumstances as we look to him. So uh, I want to read the text, but before I do that, I want to pray with you that God would open our hearts to receive his word. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do uh, provide in your word examples of people who suffered greatly. Chiefly, of course, we have the Lord himself, but also many others who, as they followed you, suffered in intense and difficult ways. Father, we are not, most of us, suffering that intensely at the moment. We are, most of us, wildly inconvenienced. And most of us still have our jobs. Most of us still have our health. Uh, what most of us are struggling with is the feeling of restriction. Father, I pray that you would help us in these days. Help us to redeem them, to rejoice in struggles, to rejoice in the, the difficulties that you allow us to go through because, Father, we know that you intend them for our good and for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that we might glorify you, that we might rejoice in trials, and we might redeem them for the advance of the gospel. And Father, we pray uh, that you would open your word to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to have hearts to receive it. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, beginning in uh, verse 24 of chapter 1, this is what the word of God says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now let me summarize the message of these verses and then explain how and why the text tells us that so that you understand that I'm not just pulling what I want to say out of my ear and, and that it really does teach us what I'm telling you that it does. Because again, I have no authority to tell you what God thinks about anything. God's authority is in his word by his spirit. And my job is to faithfully explain it and to help us all understand what it means and how to obey it. So uh, let me explain here, summarizing. Uh, the, here's the message of these verses that we should, as believers in Jesus Christ, rejoice in gospel advancing suffering. We should Rejoice in gospel advancing suffering. Now let me explain how I got to that conclusion from the text. If you look at verses 24 to 26 closely, what you'll see is that together they form one long sentence. Paul, as he writes these letters to churches and leaders, is famous for his sentences which go on for a long stretch. But three verses, one sentence, and it begins with what is, by worldly standards, a very odd statement. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now let me ask you, what kind of person rejoices in suffering? I mean, my wife's birthday is today. We're going to rejoice in cake and presents. And we're going to rejoice in nice weather outside. We're going to sit on the back patio under our little patio umbrella and eat and enjoy life. That is easy to rejoice in. Rejoice in steak. Rejoice in green beans, right? Rejoice in suffering? I don't know about that. What kind of person rejoices in suffering? Rejoicing in prosperity? Sure. But rejoicing in suffering, not so much, at least not for most of us. But Paul explains why. That first of all, he is suffering for their sake. And second, that his suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. And what does all that mean? Well, let me be very clear about one thing. Uh, first of all, that Paul does not mean that his suffering is in any sense salvific in the same way as Jesus' suffering on the cross. And Paul is not somehow implying that Jesus' suffering and death lacked something in bringing atonement for us. All that was necessary to pay the penalty for our sin and to redeem us from sin and death and hell has been done by Jesus, and we can add nothing to it. Uh, when Jesus died, he paid the complete debt that we owe. But what Paul is talking about is something different. 
the fact that his own personal suffering serves to advance the gospel among the Gentiles in a way that Jesus' suffering and death did not directly, at least, accomplish. Jesus' suffering made salvation available to the Gentiles. And praise God for that. But it still had to be proclaimed and made known as we are still doing around the world uh, through all kinds of missionaries, through the, the advance and the spread of the church around the world. About 25,000 people every day come to faith in Jesus Christ. About 26,000 new churches are planted every year in every country in the world. The gospel is spreading, but it is spreading through... Many, in many cases, the suffering of Jesus' people. And Paul is one of those who, by his suffering, is making the gospel known to the Gentiles. That what Jesus made available, Paul is suffering to make known. And Paul's suffering, like that of Christians and missionaries all over the world, make that salvation known to those who need it. And it gives also the gospel credibility because those who suffer in sharing Christ underline the truth of the message. Amen? It's like, it's like saying, well, I believe that exercise is important. Well, how much do you exercise? Well, none, because exercise is painful. It's hard. I believe Christians should be willing to suffer to advance the gospel. Well, how much have you suffered for it? Well, not at all, actually. But if you have paid your dues, and Paul has paid his dues, amen? Anybody that's been publicly flogged eight times, been imprisoned a lot for years for spreading the gospel, is a paid-up member of the Suffering for Jesus Guild. Amen? This is a guy who has laid it down. In fact, if you were to look at Paul's back, I think he would have looked like one giant keloid scar from about the earlobes down. And he has laid his life down for the advance of the gospel. A message that people are willing to suffer for to deliver is a message that they are really convinced is true. And it gives the gospel credibility. Verse 25, Paul makes it clear that he is doing this because it is part of the stewardship that he has received from God to make the gospel fully known to the Gentiles, including the Colossian church. You may not know this, men and women. But believe it or not, when you sign up for Jesus, you sign up for suffering at some level. I, I, I hate to break your heart if you, if you are uh, into some of these preachers that you watch on TV. I suppose you're watching me in some sense on TV now. But guys that you watch on religious television that tell you that God's will for you is to be perfectly healthy and to be rich and to have every prayer you've ever prayed be answered in precisely the way 
that you have prayed and requested. They never seem to get around to these texts in the Bible. They never seem to take note of the fact that much of what is written by Paul is written from a prison cell. Or of the fact that Jesus himself, the Son of God, suffered and died on a cross. And that Jesus said that it, if a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And so we should expect that suffering is part of the curriculum that you get when you sign up to follow Jesus. And it is because of Christ coming in suffering for sin and offering for salvation that there was a mystery that was revealed that had lain hidden for generations but is now made known to those who believe in Christ. What Paul means by this mystery is that the gospel wasn't clearly understood until Jesus died and was raised. Remember the reaction of the disciples when they hear that Jesus is raised? Now, some of them get very excited, but some of them are literally struck dumb by the idea. They can't understand it. In fact, when Jesus tells them repeatedly throughout the Gospels, by the way, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified and die and three days later rise from the dead, you read over and over again, but they did not understand what Jesus was telling them. It was a mystery. It didn't make sense to them. People saw throughout the Old Testament little fragments of things that seemed to indicate that the Messiah would suffer and die, but it didn't make sense because they also saw that the Messiah would reign. And they didn't know that there was going to be a two-phase aspect to the coming of Messiah. The first, the suffering servant, and second, the reigning king. But Jesus in his coming made the mystery clear. It's like that moment. We watch a lot of mystery shows at my house. A lot of murder mystery things. I don't know why we're so into murder at my house, but we are. Watch Miss Marple or somebody. And, and what do you watch that for? You watch it so that at the end, when Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple or whoever explains everything and how all the clues fit together and you go, oh man, I can't believe it, right? Or last night we watched uh, The Dark Knight Rises and there's that massive plot twist at the end. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. You should, really should have by now. Um, but in any case, you have that plot twist at the end where you realize that the child who escaped from prison was not Bane, it's Miranda. And that the, the reason Bane has that mask is because he was her protector in that hole, right? And you go, oh my gosh. It's a wonderful moment, last five minutes of the movie, right? And we watch things like that because we want to see the mystery revealed. And Paul is saying that Jesus is a mystery that's revealed, that all of a sudden, all of the pieces fit 
to reveal God's promised Messiah and salvation through him to give people who could not understand it a complete picture of the gospel. And what it reveals is what Paul tells us in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Six beautiful words that give us a gospel shorthand that faith in Christ results in Christ's indwelling presence within your heart and life to give you eternal life. The certain hope that you will one day experience glory in the presence of God in eternity and for all eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And having received an understanding of that glorious gospel message, Paul works according to verses 28 and 29 with all of the energy that this Holy Spirit provides to make sure that everyone who believes in Christ also grows up to maturity in Christ. Now, in case I've lost you in all these details, let me summarize again what Paul is saying here. That he rejoices in his suffering because his suffering is not meaningless. And by the way, isn't that why we struggle with suffering? Because it seems random. It seems meaningless. It seems pointless. And we ask God, why am I experiencing this? What are you doing in this? And Paul's saying, no, it isn't meaningless. It isn't pointless. It's accomplishing the most noble of all purposes. It is serving to make the gospel known and to give it credibility. It helps me to carry out my job that Jesus gave me in proclaiming it and teaching everyone God's word. And it's worth suffering. And it's worth going through all of the hard work that Paul has put in because Jesus' body, the church, is growing in numbers and in maturity as a result. And all of this points to how this this section of Scripture applies to us. Like Paul, we have a stewardship before God to make disciples that begins by proclaiming the gospel to everyone we encounter. And then teaching them to follow everything Jesus taught. And it is worth suffering to see that happen. It is worth suffering to see that happen. In fact, our suffering can bring us joy, just like it brought Paul joy. If we are responding to that suffering like Jesus did. To his, like Paul did to his. So let me ask you all a question. How are you responding? How are you responding to whatever suffering you're undergoing? Are you rejoicing in it? Are you seizing it as an opportunity to make disciples? Are you using it to proclaim the greatness and glory of the gospel of Christ in you? The hope of glory. Are you revealing to your children and to your friends and to your co-workers, all the people that you have in your life, how Jesus transforms suffering? 
Are you using it to advance the gospel? Are you using it to grow to maturity yourself? That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. And it's what we're called to do as well. Amen? We are. Now, I want to look with you at five more verses here. Uh, jump into chapter 2 with you before we conclude our time together. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 with me. The text says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, in verses 24 to 29 of chapter 1, we saw that we should rejoice in gospel-advancing suffering. What we see in these verses is that we should use our pain to energize one another toward spiritual maturity. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, uh, why does Paul want the Colossians and their nearby sister church at Laodicea and every other believing brother and sister whom he has not even met yet to know about his great struggles for them and how great they have been. It isn't so that he can gather up a pity party. It is so that they can be encouraged and knit together to grow together in maturity. And maturity includes mutual encouragement and tight-knit love for one another. And it includes what Paul calls here in the text, full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What does that mean? It describes the confident faith that results from a full understanding of the gospel of Christ, something that was, once again, a mystery before Jesus was revealed, but now that he has come, reveals the whole picture of God's understanding and salvation to us. And Paul's point is that his suffering ought to encourage them that Jesus is worth suffering for. And that they can look to his example as they grow up into maturity along with him. And what we see is that this is true wherever we see Christians suffer in church history. Back in the second century, uh, the early church father, Tertullian, threw the gauntlet down. And he said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Meaning, you put us to death and we'll just spread even more. And that's what happened. As Christianity was persecuted, the more it was persecuted, the more it spread out across the Roman Empire. 
and upended an entire system of pagan worship and life. And you see that all over the world even today. You see it in countries like Iran. You see it in China. Which, if their goal of the Communist Party was to eliminate Christianity, they should have just left it alone. Because the more it has been persecuted, the more it has spread. They say that it's possible somewhere between 100 and 300 million people in communist China know the living God. From 1 million in 1949. And of course, some of you will remember this story about the year 1957 when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Pete Fleming and Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley got themselves killed by Warani tribesmen. It spawned a generation of missionaries. Depicted in the movie The End of the Spear. And written about in a book called Through Gates of Splendor. And as that story was told, sharing about pain and suffering that people have experienced for the sake of the gospel, what it does is ironically cause the gospel to advance even more and to strengthen people's faith and to say to and, and for them to say to themselves, if they can do it. If Jesus is worth it for them, he's worth it to me too. It motivates us and it encourages us to lay it all down for the cause, just as our brothers and sisters have done. Now in verses 3 through 5, Paul begins dealing with the false teaching that is infecting the Colossian church. And so he describes Jesus Christ as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The false teachers at Colossae, and by the way, Satan is not that creative. He only has a few lies that he tells people, but one of the ones that is his favorite is that, well, Jesus is good, but you know, there's, there's more. I got another book for you. I got some secret knowledge, some hidden knowledge, some other thing that I'd like you to throw alongside of him. And so you get the writings of Mary Ellen White, perhaps, or you get the Book of Mormon, or you get uh, these other books that are out there. People say, well, what about this? Well, this seems to point kind of to Jesus, maybe in an oblique way. But, you know, this will give you some secret knowledge. And so there were people active in the church in Colossae who were saying, you know, you really should take Jesus and these other things that we're telling you. So then you know all the secrets. Verse 4, Paul says, So no one can delude you with plausible arguments. Right now, all over the world, 
there are people who will come to your door and they will try to sell you something. And it will sound good. It will sound good. But Paul's goal is to help people grow up. And to help them grow up into Christ in whom are hidden all wisdom, all knowledge that you need to know about who God is and how to be redeemed and how to grow to spiritual maturity. Beyond Jesus, there isn't something else. There isn't more out there that you should explore outside of the scriptures. Jesus is everything that you need. And Jesus is the end of it all. Better or higher or deeper than Jesus does not exist. And so let no one delude you with plausible arguments. If someone does, it will lead you to stray away from him, not lead you closer to him. And finally, Paul concludes with a word of encouragement to them, verse 5, that though he isn't with them Physically, he is present with them spiritually through their mutual union with Jesus. And he rejoices to see their good order and the, the firmness of their faith in Christ. Now that verse makes my own heart sing with encouragement. Because as a pastor, I can tell you that one of the things that has just been galling to my soul on a daily basis is the fact that I am physically separated from all of you whom I love. I long for the day when I can put an arm around you and pray with you right next to you. I long when I, for the day when I can sit across a table again and drink coffee and open God's word with you and say, let's look at your situation in light of God's word and let's pray together about how to help you to grow. I long for the day when we can gather in a room and, with God's people and all bow our heads and pray together. But I am very thankful for the truth that even when we are absent from one another physically, that we are present with one another spiritually, not in some, not in some ooey-gooey mystical sense, but in the sense that we are all, by the Holy Spirit, connected to Jesus. And that because we have Jesus as the common connection point, because we are all equally part of his body, that we have a spiritual union that overcomes distance. And, and our goal is the same, or should be the same, for our own lives as it is with Paul and these people to see one another grow in Christ and how deep their faith has become. As a pastor, it's my goal. Nothing encourages me more than to see the people who I am called to serve as under shepherd, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ.
see how deep your faith is becoming even when I am not physically present with you. It gives me joy. So, what is the point of this whole passage? It's very simple. That like Paul, we should rejoice in gospel advancing suffering. And then we should redeem our pain. We should use our pain to encourage each other to grow in Christ. I know that all of us right now are suffering in various ways and to varying degrees from this coronavirus crisis. Some of you watching this may be watching your savings evaporate into thin air as you're having to spend them just to sustain your life. Some of you have lost your job and you aren't sure when or whether you'll be able to get another one. Some of you are actually sick with various things. There's a lot of the creeping crud going around in addition to the coronavirus. There are other people who, because the hospitals have been shut down, are waiting on medical procedures that were deemed non-essential but are critically important. And so you suffer in pain, maybe with a knee that needs replaced or some other kind of procedure that needs to happen. Some of us are dealing with all of the issues that result from canceled plans and trips and celebrations and forced separation from family members and friends. And all are serious. Some are obviously more so than others. And they are all painful. But men and women... We should rejoice even in these circumstances. I am convinced that God is using our suffering to advance the gospel and that he uses our pain to encourage one another to grow to maturity in Christ and to deepen the firmness of our faith. And God is, through these things and in these days, reminding us that Christ is the fulfillment of all of our hopes. That every bit of Old Testament prophecy uh, that is fulfilled in Him, that growing up to look like Him and to... And that everything we gain through him, all of the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge of God that he offers us, that all these things are what ultimately matters in life. So let's not waste any of our sorrows, whatever they are. Let's not let any of them pass us by without learning from them, growing for, from them, and learning to rejoice in them, knowing that God is redeeming them and using them to advance the gospel. And let's use our pain that we're all experiencing right now 
at varying levels. To encourage each other to look up at Jesus and to grow to look like him. That we might more effectively advance the gospel. Because what would it look like if, if in all of this stuff that's going on, all of the, 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 the fighting and arguing about when we should open up, whether we should open up, uh, how many sick people counts as a big deal, etc. All of the back and forth and all of that, that what Christians were doing was what Paul did. And rejoicing in their suffering and saying, it's worth it if it serves to advance the gospel. And I believe that it is, and therefore, it's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, it's worth much worse than this. If, it's cause, if it causes our nation and our world to see Christ in all of his beauty and embrace him in faith. Now, with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll sing some more and celebrate Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, a passage like this is hard for us to get our arms around. To be honest, our natural reaction is not, is not rejoicing in suffering. It is complaining in suffering. It is counting up all of the things that we have lost and not looking for the things that you might want us to gain in all of these things. Father, forgive us our complaining. And Father, help us to rejoice in triumph, knowing that your purposes for us in it are good. And that you are using these circumstances as you use all circumstances to advance the spread of the gospel and the growth of your church all over the world. Father, may we not waste this time. But Father, I pray you would use it to help us to grow to maturity in Christ. And, and that you would use it in each of our lives to encourage each other to grow up. And to look like Jesus at the end when Christ comes. And Father, we pray that you would be honored in this service. And we ask for each one that you would draw them near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.